RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 314, Equilibrium. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I am the culmination and yet the continuation of hundreds of years of lives and experiences. I'm John Cia Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Uh, I'm sorry, did you say John Zia? Yeah. I always thought it was John Zia. Huh. Anyway, Mission Log is a show with a mission to watch Star Trek, then talk about Star Trek taking it apart for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether it holds up today. This week, Equilibrium, the one where Dax goes in for a checkup, and Cisco and Bashir go for their PI licenses. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Um, so I feel a little duped, John. I feel a little taken. Why is that? Well, last week you said we weren't going to Kronos anymore, but I could almost guarantee that that is actually the same painting for Kronos as it is no. for Trill. Really? Not, <laughs> no, not just definitely they, not. They didn't just adjust like the white balance and the color and stuff like that? No. No, there are similarities. I know. All right. But this is a whole new world. Because I expected, mm-hmm. wow, a whole new world. That's for the rest mm-hmm. of the yeah, day Aladdin. now. Thank you yeah. very much. That's, yeah. uh, I really mm-hmm. appreciate You're that. You're welcome. Uh, I really honestly expected that to be one of the trivia bits that was coming up here on the show. You're saying no, so please uh, hit me with the trivia that you got. Here we go. Trivia for this week's episode, Equilibrium. The story is by Christopher Teague. Never heard of him? No? Okay. Well, uh, hold that thought, and we will talk more about him when we get to the guest stars. Now, the teleplay is by Rene Echeverria. Now, of course, we know Rene's work from his spec story, The Offspring on TNG, and throughout the run of that series until he made the jump over to DS9 as a writer slash producer. This is the first DS9 episode on which he is credited for the teleplay, though. There are many more to come. This was directed by Cliff Bowl. Now, there's another frequently heard name. He contributed across all seven seasons of TNG, and the most recent of his directorial work on DS9 for us was The Collaborator. He's got just a few more DS9 episodes before jumping over to Voyager. Hey, Ken, you called it new location means new matte painting. Yes, a new matte painting of the Trill homeworld, also known as Trill, home of the Trill. Oh, but there is a little bit of location shooting here, though, with the uh, Huntington Gardens being used as a Trill exterior. We first saw that way back in Justice at the start of TNG, and it appeared again as a garden on Beta Z. It's not that far out of L.A., just between Pasadena and San Marino. 
Now, we usually don't go too deep into music on Mission Log. Certainly, there are plenty of other podcasts and experts out there who cover music very well. But it is worth pointing out that this is an episode that called for a special, memorable music cue. Well, who is the right person for that job? You might guess it's the person who provided a memorable music cue for the inner light, and you would be correct. That's Jay Chataway's job, and he delivered here after getting the request to score the episode on a very short deadline. The producers actually chose his very first draft of that tune. Let's talk about guest stars as we do. Nicholas Cascone plays the Guardian Timor. Now, he had a bit role before on track as an ensign in the TNG episode Pen Pals. He shows up in TV guest roles, but also in a number of big-name films. Uh, There's Titanic, The Cell, Baby Boom. And he was in not one, but two episodes of Moonlighting. We should get him on. We absolutely should. We should grab him now for for his uh, Star Trek work, but then say, by Uh the way, in like 60 or 70 years, we're doing a Moonlighting podcast, Mm -hmm. and... We'd love to talk to you about the uh, two days you were there. He might be in Vegas. You never know. We, ah. should, uh, we should ask him while he's there. That'd be awesome. We have Lisa Baines as Dr. Renhall. Now, Lisa has really made the guest star round since the 1980s with a few solid recurring gigs in there, too. Shows like Son of the Beach, Royal Pains, and Nashville. She was a regular on the Sharon Glass series, The Trials of Rosie O'Neill. This might be her only Trek appearance, but you may have seen her pop up opposite Bill Shatner on Boston Legal. Yolad Bilar is played by Harvey Vernon. He had roles in a handful of movies, Teen Wolf, MacArthur, and All of Me, to name a few. He also made the TV guest rounds, but actually didn't start his on-camera career until the mid-70s, when he was already nearly 50 years old. He was a series regular on the sitcom Carter Country, by the way, and I don't know why that one stood out to me, but I remember watching that show as a kid and and forgetting it. But then years later, somebody says like, hey, you remember Carter Country? Like, yeah, I remember Carter Country. Victor French, who doesn't remember Carter Country? Finally, Jeff Magnus McBride plays Joran Bellar. Now, remember when I asked you at the beginning to remember Christopher Teague as the story credit for this episode? Well, Michael Piller and Christopher were mutual friends of Jeff McBride's. Jeff was and still is a stage magician of some renown, and Michael was really impressed with his act. And what was it in the act that he liked? Well, Jeff has this bit where he's wearing a mask and then pulls it off to reveal another mask, and then more and more and more, and you see where I'm going. Michael loved the bit and asked their friend Christopher to craft a story. At one time, it was about a murderer in a circus that had stopped by DS9. At another point, it was an Odo story. By the time it made it through the producers, it was Ronald D. Moore who suggested that the mask metaphor worked best as a Dax story. So Jeff was brought in to do his thing, appearing here as the mysterious figure, then as Joran Balar. And if you'd like to see his act, just search on YouTube for his name and masks. Supper time, and the living is easy. Except for Dax, who is about to be seriously messed up. Prologue. Dinner party at the Cisco's. Benjamin is cooking up what can only be described as a very creative interpretation of a Creole feast. Everyone is in casual mode, and when Dax joins the party, she spots the 24th century version of a Casio keyboard owned by Jake. 
She says neither she nor her symbiont or its other host ever had any musical talent, yet she sits down and, surprising herself, starts to play well-crafted, familiar tune. Act 1. The next day, playing chess with Commander Sisko, Dax is humming that tune. She can't get it out of her head, even if she wanted to. Growing distracted and agitated, in a very undax way, she freaks out when Benjamin wins their match and accuses him of cheating. She storms off, and later is found in the replimat by Kira, who wants to know what's going on. Whatever it is, Dax is still feeling it because the moment turns tense with even a threat of Kira's personal safety. Walking off again, this time Dax finds that the corridor around her is changing. The lighting is more sinister. It feels like she's being watched. And she is by a mysterious masked figure on the upper level of the promenade. She looks away, and he's gone. Then suddenly appears right in front of her. The mask is smooth and nondescript. Then the figure pulls it away to reveal another mask. Terrified, Dax retreats and finds herself back in the normal environment of DS9, bumps into Quark, and insists to him that everything is fine. Act 2. So Dax is lashing out and seeing things, and just being unlike herself. She stops by the infirmary for an examination by Dr. Bashir, and seems to be a little more herself now, even apologetic about her terrible recent behavior. She admits that she's full of anger, but has no idea why. And then there's the hallucinations, and the music, none of it adds up. Bashir doesn't find a solid explanation to what's going on, but he does have something to go on. One of the earlier Dax hosts, Tarius, was in a shuttle crash. He was in a coma for six months until the level of the neurotransmitter isoboramine dropped so low that he died in order for the Dax symbiont to be saved. Jadzia's isoboramine levels are dropping too. With not much else to go on, Bashir suggests that a trip to the Trill homeworld might solve the mystery. Jump to the Defiant, and Dax is having trouble sleeping. She's opening up to Dr. Bashir about her anxiety around going back to the Symbiosis Commission. It wasn't exactly the best experience for her the first time around, and she also hates being around doctors. No offense, Julian. It's okay. They'll both get some rest, and before you know it, welcome to the Trill homeworld. Or Trill, as we call it around here. Just full of trills. In the Symbiosis Commission, Jedzia Dax has put through a whole bunch of tests, She's stable for now, and Bashir suggests plenty of rest back on Defiant. Not exactly the most exciting vacation, but she grudgingly agrees. On her way to her quarters, though, that weird music again, and then the guy in a mask, and then two more trills who try to grab her. As Dax fights back, she throws a punch that nearly lands on Bashir. He's there, snapping her back into reality. Act 3. Even though Dax should be stable and her isoboramine levels have risen, she's still having those hallucinations. She has no idea what they mean or who the figures are. She does know that the trills who tried to grab her were wearing uniforms from the commission, but maybe a hundred years old, well before Jadzia was there. So whose bad memories are influencing her hallucinations? Her next step is to visit the Guardians, unjoined trills who take care of the symbionts, all of which swim around in subterranean pools, talking to each other with electrical discharges. The, the symbionts, that is, not the guardians. 
The Guardian actually recognizes Dax somehow and even senses that the balance is off, which is leading to the strange hallucinations. Timor, that's the Guardian, offers to help Jadzia as best he can, and he comes to the conclusion that the fault doesn't lie with the Dax symbiont, but rather with the host, or at least one of the hosts, one prior to Jadzia. Meanwhile, on the Defiant, Bashir and Sisko have been doing some detective work of their own and identified the music riff that has been haunting Jadzia. It's an oldie, written some 86 years ago by Joran Bellar. The name doesn't ring any bells with Jadzia, but a picture sure does. Seeing him, Jadzia finds herself in another hallucination, this time with the masked figure stabbing an unnamed trill in the neck. The masked figure says, He left me with no choice. And when Jadzia tries to confront him, the mask disappears, revealing Joran Balar, putting Dax into neural shock. Act 4. Back at the Symbiosis Commission, Dr. Renhall is doing what she can, trying to stabilize Dax while asking questions about any other influence that could have led to her condition. Keep in mind, if she can't be brought out of the state she's in, the symbiont will be removed, in effect saving Dax but killing Jadzia. Not satisfied with that prospect, Sisko and Bashir go back to the caves to visit Timor and inquire more about his assertion that an old host must be responsible for Dax's current condition. He's extremely hesitant to get back into it, almost as if he's been told to not discuss it anymore, almost as if this whole thing should be covered up. Let's circle back around to Joran Balar. He's dead, and the data file on his life has been mostly scrubbed of any detail. Sisko notices something curious, though. The day Joran Bilar died is the same day Tarias Dax died, which is the same day the Dax symbiont was moved into Curzon. Nope, nothing suspicious here, except everything. Joran Bilar may be gone, but his brother, Yolad Bilar, is still alive and very old. Bashir tracks down his number, and Sisko gives him a call. What can you tell us about Joran? Well, not too much. Joran has been dead 85 years. No idea if he knew a Torias Dax, but it could have been someone he met through the commission when Joran was an initiate. Wait, what? Joran was an initiate himself? Apparently so, but he was dropped from the program. That part didn't go so well. Upon hearing the news he was dropped, Joran killed the doctor assigned to him. Yolad is sure of that, but he says about six months before that incident, Joran called him up and said he had already been joined. Now it's time to put two and two together, or two and one symbiont. Sisko figures that Dax wasn't simply moved from Torias to Curzon. No, there might have been something or someone in between, namely Joran Bellar. Act 5. Here's Jadzia, isoboramine levels dropping rapidly, and Dr. Renhol ready to remove Dax and let Jadzia die. Sisko interrupts by confronting her with a big old truth bomb. They know all about Joran Balar. The attempt to put Dax in him failed, and there was an attempt to not only erase the records, but also to block that memory from the Dax symbiont. Dax is remembering to terrible effect. But why? Normally, only one in a thousand trill are suitable for joining. Rejection, if it occurs, happens in a matter of days. That's why the screening process is so rigorous. 
In this case, though, Dax was joined to the unstable, unsuitable, not to mention violent Joran for a full six months. That's the secret. That's the cover-up. Sisko is less concerned with that nugget of truth, though, than he is about saving Jadzia. He's got leverage, though. Either Renhol can save Jadzia now, or he'll let the whole planet know what's going on. That prospect terrifies Renhol. It would be chaos if the Trill knew that many more of them were, in fact, capable of joining. It would be a detriment to the symbionts, making them commodities. They have to maintain the secret. Sisko isn't having it. They can save Jadzia, and even if allowing the Jaron personality to emerge is dangerous, that's Jadzia's decision to make. She has decided, apparently, and alone, she enters a symbiont pool. An energy discharge, like we saw before, connects with Jadzia, and the image of Jaron emerges from the pool. This Jaron is calm, not threatening, and Jadzia welcomes him with open arms. He is a part of her. Back on DS9, Sisko drops by to visit Jadzia and see how she's doing. She'll be fine. It's just a lot to process. Sure, it would have been easier if she'd never known, but Jadzia tells her friend, if you want to know who you are, it's important to know who you've been. When Benjamin leaves, Dax takes out the keyboard and plays, perfectly, that tune that Jaram Balar composed. The End. Well done. Thank you. No problem at all. Uh, I know when this episode started, you had to be completely excited. Um, uh, for me, this was Riker's Eggs, Generation <laughs> After Next. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 wait a minute. Uh, uh, Riker is the destroyer of eggs. Right, yeah. in that everybody was gathered in somebody's quarters to share a meal. Yeah. And it was an interesting bit of camaraderie that I don't think we have seen just a sort of, hey, we're having a relaxed evening over at my place. You want to come by? Um, mm -hmm. mostly we didn't see that on next gen either past the time that Riker made those truly terrible eggs uh, yeah, from, from yeah. all, almost all accounts. Worf loved them. Worf could have had two plates and probably did, <laughs> but, um, they were, it reminded me uh, of that scene. And, uh, plus it's always fun to talk about Riker's terrible eggs. Yeah. And it's nice to see the crew in casual mode and just hanging out and cause he, they have to have downtime and we, we don't get enough of that, especially here. But uh, it's nice to see that. But boy, howdy about that food. <laughs> so much food right at the beginning of the show. So you know that I took extensive notes. Uh, being passed on that plate, it looked like some water crackers and some veggies in there. Uh, some kind of green souffle, uh, which is definitely being overbeaten. Okay. Uh, by by the time we discuss that, and it's handed off to Odo, and he just keeps going. Uh, big big problem with that. Black and red fish, which uh, I'm impressed that there seems to be live cooking on set. You better believe it. I, I went back and rewound that and watched it many times up close. There was actually cooking food. There was bubbling butter and oil in there to cook it. But I will say, definitely insufficient heat and insufficient ventilation for black and red fish. Those are two really important ingredients there. So they were just kind of, they were just kind of sauteing some fish. Um, but I will say this, I will say this. I'm definitely with Bashir. Um, I can never have beets and still be perfectly fine. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I, I actually hated that part when they, um, when they, I hate anytime somebody says, well, you just haven't had good X, yeah, right. you know, right. where X equals that thing that I may have tried a million times. I can, I can tell you actually, um, I'm not a beer drinker, 
Mm-hmm. When I came back to, when I moved back to San Francisco at one point in the early 2000s, um, people kept saying, you know, hey, let me buy you a beer. I'd be like, well, I don't drink beer. If you can uh, buy me a bourbon, I'd be fine with that or, you know, sure, something else. But yeah. they'd be like, well, have you tried this beer? And then finally, I just got tired of arguing with people. So I would, I would like <laughs> try a taste of their beer. Yeah. And it got to the point where I could tell them why this beer was, why they might enjoy it. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, so you like it? And I'd be like, no, it still tastes like swill to me. But this is this is how much you have to deal with people going, oh, well, you just haven't tried, you know, this yeah, this thing. Yeah. yeah. Let the man not like beets for crying out loud. Now. Exactly. It would also be more polite if you were like, oh, as opposed yeah, to, yeah. you know, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Cisco should also be grown up enough to be like, oh, you don't like beets? Fine. There's, no, fine. There, there's potatoes over there, too. How about. And, and a replicator. And a replicator. So That's you right. You could replicate up some Taco Bell. Yes. And you'd be fine. Um, originally, the script called for rutabagas. No. Um, yeah, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Renee didn't think that was funny enough. I think rutabaga is a funnier word than beets. That's a hilarious so, word. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's right up there with parsnip. Um, oh, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I do love cream spinach. So that was on the menu. Yeah. But can we, can we just get real here for a minute? This is a really weird combination for a Cajun meal. Just a very strange combination. If I were to go into a Cajun restaurant, um, and, and I've been in a few, um, I see, I'd go with the black and red fish, probably some sort of rice on the side, probably some fried green tomatoes to start out with. Uh, you throw in a corn cake, and then if you really need a healthy vegetable, just uh, wilt some spinach or, or maybe a green bean saute. Now we're talking uh, a Cajun meal to go along with that uh, black and red fish. See, I was going to say, if you really need a healthy vegetable, go someplace else. Yeah, or yeah. deep fry, just whatever is in it, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, there you go. Now I'm hungry, so uh, you get to handle the next part. <laughs> well, um, I, I, you mentioned the, the souffle and yeah. how it was overbeaten. Um, Kira walks up to Odo at that point, and she's like, oh, be, you look so cute, which I'm pretty sure is why uh, um, uh, uh, Cisco allowed it to be overbeaten. Because he also yeah, thought oh. it just looked so cute. Oh, he's just so cute doing that, like an idiot. Because <laughs> look at him. <laughs> He's doing it wrong. Why is he moving the bowl? What's what's wrong with him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's a question. Speaking of that, you know, uh, that horrible, uh, not horrible. I'm sorry. I'm still thinking about Riker's eggs. Speaking of that mm-hmm. dinner thing, mm-hmm. uh, how is nobody freaked out that Dax can't play an instrument, but she can? Yeah. I, right. I know they don't watch a lot of Star Trek on Deep Space Nine, but things like that usually mean horrible illness alien takeover it's not good remember that time that uh cisco didn't know how to build a clock mm-hmm. but he did mm-hmm. and nearly got everybody on deep space nine killed yes yeah pretty much the second she says i don't know how to play and then starts doing like you know rhapsody in blue or whatever uh, <laughs> get her to sick bay like right then like really you yeah. don't know how to play no i don't because you're doing it yeah i know okay yeah and they try to come up with excuse that maybe something you heard in childhood sure i could have heard it doesn't mean i can play it because <laughs> this is an instrument that yeah. takes skill to play yeah i remember one time i heard some guy play uh play my can't think of anything that i would hear somebody play on the violin i wouldn't expect to immediately just be able to do that and then go well that's weird <laughs> yeah yeah but there's so many excuses for a trill. Whenever you need the excuse, like, oh, but you're like 700 years old. There's so much in there that you've probably forgotten that we'll just, we'll let this one pass too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the trills. Um, by the way, uh, which one's the trill? 
I, I think the the humanoid the humanoid form is the trill. Okay. But but here's the problem: they they have a problem with nomenclature. Okay. Because because uh, like okay, you and I can we're humans. We're on the planet Earth. Yes. Right. Okay. Also known as as Terra. Yeah. In the soul sector, there are many ways to refer to to what we what we are right. and and where we are. The trills are trill on trill. Yes. There's like a lot of hot trill on trill action, if you ask me. <laughs> there is. There yeah. is. Yeah. And that's that's true. And yet I still I'm not 100 percent certain. So it's host symbiont. Would they both be considered trill at that point? Or do you I mean, See, like, I, I thought so, too. Yeah. If they're combined, they're trill. If they're individual, they are trill. If you're a symbiont, you're just a slug. So would you rather. <laughs> right. So here's the question, though. I mean, so do you want them to be like from Trillinar? Because I still can't mm. believe that the Ferengi homeworld is called Ferenginar. Ferenginar. That's just, yeah. That just, Vulcans that's just, are from Vulcan. Or Vulcania. Or Vulcania. Oh, no, Vulcanians on. are from uh, whatever. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Now they just need a different word. Yeah. They're just like, we're trills. We're from the planet New Jersey. You know, <laughs> just like give it something completely, <laughs> completely different. Um, uh, Bashir goes up to Timor. Can I ask what you're doing? Yes. Okay. All right, so we're we're really making that joke. Yeah, here. we're just yeah. <laughs> I, I I'll tell you what I wanted to say though. Can I ask what you're doing? Oh, just checking the chlorine and the pH levels and <laughs> making sure there are lots of pool noodles and deck chairs. And <laughs> he was like the pool boy for the for the trill, wasn't he? Yeah, I wish we could ring a bell. I think that's the first time pool noodle has been mentioned on Mission Log. Pool noodle is my it's my uh, that's my Smash Mouth cover band. Nice, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's good. Um, hey, and, and why aren't the Guardians ever allowed to go outside and get some sun? I mean, it sounds like there are more of them than just Timor. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I remember the sun. Like, <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> this is yeah, this is sadder than I thought. It is incredibly yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a question for you, a medical question. Yeah. Uh, neural shock. Mm-hmm. Is that anything like shock? What? <laughs> It's, I, I think they're they're similar, okay. Uh, but but you you got a you got an additional word in front of it. Yeah, yeah. well, right, because it makes it you know spacey, makes it science fictiony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they, yeah, oh man, they they missed an opportunity. They could have called it space shock. She's in space shock. We yeah. need to get her back to our spaceship, right? <laughs> that would have been so good. Would have been nice. Uh, oh, and uh, Julian tells uh, Cisco the computer has identified the music seriously we shazammed it and that's how we got it uh, I actually I, I i love this because in in 1995 if you're writing a script for a sci-fi thing you can decide like you hear a little bit of music way early in the show and then somebody finally decides to identify it and you could decide in that script right then and there in 1995 we're going to let this process take days right. or hours or whatever, whereas now, because the technology has changed, you can just pick up your phone and go, what song is this? And then, boom, you have an answer in about 10 seconds. See, it's so interesting because I read a, I read a, I read a fascinating short story. It's the first short story ever published by um, Arthur C. Clarke. It's published in 1937 called uh, Travel by Wire. And basically, it's him trying to figure out teleportation. It's him trying yeah. to figure out all the stuff that we talk about, except except with a sense of humor, which is kind of funny. Mm. Um, but he's obviously writing the idea that we're just going to be able to teleport one day. In 1995, I mean, if you're trying to make a TV show, right, you have to figure something out 
you may even think one day people are just going to be able to speak into the air and get whatever answers they need. Mm-hmm. Smart guys like us doing, you know, real to real tape shows <laughs> discussing <laughs> Star Trek in 1995 would be like, wow, what an easy cheat. They're just saying, oh, yeah, the computer is going to be able to do everything, even though right. now right. the worst smartphone can tell you, you know, what that song was. Yeah. Yeah, I just I I, I kind of love that because it's one of those things you look at now as being kind of quaint. And again, you, the the writer could just make it whatever they wanted it to be. Yeah, um, similar to the whole thing that we talked about in uh, was it court martial, mm, where they were like yeah. they go over and they start the tape, and I think it was Gene actually who was like, "It's not going to be tape." And like, okay, well, what's it going to be? Smart guys, like I don't know, but it's not going to be tape. It's space tape. <laughs> it's not space. It's, <laughs> little, it's little cubes. What? Like they they put it in food? No, not those cubes. It's more like <laughs> the other cubes, flat cubes. Just you know, do something. Yeah. Um, I have a question, and this goes back to who is the trail exactly? Is it the symbiont or is it the host? Do we have any idea how this whole host symbiont thing started? <laughs> We we don't. Okay. We, we know it's been going on a long time. Yeah. We know we know it doesn't work for everybody, though it works for more than they claim. Yeah, which we'll get yeah. into, believe me. Oh yeah. Um yeah, so I'm thinking one of two ways. Mm-hmm. Like one day one of the troll hosts like fell asleep with their mouth open. By by the hot tub. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And one of the little slug things was like this looks good. You know, and so you know, tried it out. Why not? A particularly small one, I'm guessing. Yeah. Uh, either that or fraternity prank. So, we are supposed to believe that what happened with Dax and Joran Balar was the only time that that happened? Seriously, what are the odds? Let's start off by talking about uh, symbionts or okay. trills All right. or the trills and symbionts or just a trill. Um, how weird is the reverence that is given to the symbionts? So Tarias was allowed to die to save the symbiont. Mm-hmm. Trills are so lucky. And, and by the way, you know, we're ready to kill Jadzia, at least uh, the, the doctor is. Mm-hmm. Um, trills are so lucky to be joined with symbionts and symbionts have their own hot tub and keepers to watch after them. I mean, look, I, I know it's special because we're told it's special, but I also wonder if there's some strange, like, self-defeating psychology at play here with the trills. Like, what if they just decided they'd had enough one day? You know, no, no more conjoining. We'll, we'll invest in building robot bodies or something else for the little slugs if they need it, or we're just going to leave you in your hot tubs. And you guys get to evolve and do the things that you do in your hot tub. But meanwhile, the trills, because there are far more trills that are not conjoined than there are ones that are, that are actually hosting a symbiont. Mm-hmm. And they're able to do things like, you know, build buildings and drive cars and eat food and do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So... It's just a little strange to me. Like, I, I, I wonder, is it just an indoctrinated, ingrained belief from the beginning, from childhood? This is the highest thing you can aspire to. And those 999 other non-joined are just like, yeah, well, that's that, that, that's the way it is. We're just never going to live up to our potential unless we, uh, uh, unless we get to be joined. It's sort of terrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> That's why I brought it up. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's and I'm thinking about things like I mean, there was um, 
Well, I mean, it's been a few weeks since we mentioned Dune. So, I mean, we could talk about the Bene Gesserit and, and the Kwisatz Haderach and all that stuff, where they basically laid the groundwork for, um, for the idea that they were something special. Going back thousands of years, maybe 10,000 years, they started this idea, mm-hmm. right? Uh, see also uh, priests and the rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, yeah. anybody who's got, who it sort of looks like, yeah, no, the grass is always greener on my side, right? Mm-hmm. Then they're, they're going to be setting up something that's going to make it look for the, good for them from then on. Uh, you, but you got to have some, like, really, you got to have some Benny Gesserit level uh, PR because I don't understand why, if it's one part of 1% that actually ends up joining, mm-hmm. why isn't everybody else just like, well, here's what we do we go down to that pool, we poison it. <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, no, I mean, seriously, yeah, yeah. why would like why would look the French Revolution happen for a reason? How do you not mm-hmm, end up mm-hmm. with the French Revolution on Trill or something along those lines instead of the uh, I'll never be as good as those guys. There's a fantastic there's a fantastic thing in uh, in um, an episode of the uh, of the Orville. I won't ruin it for you. I won't do anything except for uh, there's a guy from Earth who goes to this other planet. And this is this beautiful, lush planet, right? Mm-hmm. Like the kind of thing you might have seen in Next Gen. And he mm-hmm. turns to his co-pilot and he's like, you know, I see a place like this. And I just realize I'm trash. Like my whole family is just garbage. Mm. <laughs> that's kind of like, <laughs> how do you grow up on Trill knowing that you're not going to be joined and not have a bit of a, not have a bit of a uh, resentment, let's say. Yeah, well, uh, see, and, and Renhall is worried about part of the problem here, which is, okay, well, if more trills think that they can be uh, conjoined, mm. then that will commodify the, the symbionts. Well, they they sort of already are. Like, there's already this whole process. It just means you have to build more symbiosis commission buildings and, and have, you know, more people to administer at least some level of tests. But now you're testing for, say, you know, four or five hundred out of a thousand instead of one or two out of a thousand. But but the problem, there's already a problem here with this. Um, it's not deification, but the like I said, this reverence given to the symbionts. Like you will mm-hmm. never be as good unless you happen to be in this, you know, point oh one percent. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've set up a definite. I think we've talked about this before, actually. They've set up a definite caste system. Mm hmm. That's, um, yeah, fairly horrible, but everybody's going to be cool with it, including, by the way, because I assume that Jedzia <laughs> and uh, Dax uh, uh-huh. come out of this knowing, right? Uh, but they're fine because they're fine. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jadzia. Yeah, uh, I believe. And uh, and uh, just making sure we got the pronunciation in there. And uh, and Cisco and Bashir and uh, the doctor. I mean, look, you can only keep a secret for so long. You know, yeah. Conspiracies fail at a certain point because you you immeasurably increase the opportunity of its failure the more people who know what's going on. And presumably, you've got a lot of people at the commission who already know you had people who had to erase the records. Even if just some dude is looking at the records one day and goes, huh, why, why, why is this just, why is this, this talented composer, uh, why is this just wiped clean? As did Dr. Bashir. Well, he wasn't that talented. Nobody even knew his music, did they? Well, that's true. I mean, because you go to DS9, 
And you can mention like a number of composers and everybody's like, oh yeah, I love them. Oh yeah, I love them. Mm-hmm. And nobody's like, oh, and Jaren Balar. Like, yeah, no, I got no idea. Oh, I don't, man, that's not oh, just see. because you've erased the details of his life. That's because his music wasn't that great. I'm guessing. Oh, see, it was the perfect opportunity to have the Star Trek trifecta. You know, like the great composers uh-huh. of history, yes. like like Mozart and Brahms and Jean Bellar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You made that last one up, though. I don't think that's actually a no. guy. Yeah, no. No. I would say. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've actually hit on some of the stuff that I was thinking about in this episode, but I've got like mm. long meandering notes here. Great. Um, starting with uh, the difference between a guardian and a doctor. Like, is that like the difference between a doctor and somebody who practices folk medicine, say? Because hmm. say what you want to about, you know, the fact he never gets to see the sun and he and he's really a glorified pool boy. Um, mm-hmm. Timor, it, it, like he, he recognizes Dax just because he's near Dax. He's never met Jadzia Dax, but yeah. he knows Dax from who knows how long ago or from whatever mystical thing is going on with him. And then he walks over and with with his with her permission, which I appreciated the fact that he asked with her permission, he puts his hand on her stomach and he's like, wow, no. Yeah, you're you're messed up. Let's let's go find out why. And they actually find out a lot. Um, and yet you would think that Dr. Um, Renhol like doesn't even know about the hole in which Timor lives. Yeah, yeah, no. That again, there's something really weird about this this division, this caste system on Trill. Is that you have people supposedly working on the same team here, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, zero communication, zero. Uh, well, not zero uh, communication uh, because the doctor apparently comes and says, "Listen, next time Jadzia <laughs> Dax shows up here, you shut up." Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I assume that that was that that was the symbiosis commission that was that was uh, leaning on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it, it's a, a little weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, the whole thing reminded me a bit of Minority Report. Oh, yeah. uh, did you pick up on that? Like, um, like the pools where the symbionts live were a lot like uh, the pools where the precogs um, mm-hmm. are arrested. Um, I'm not sure who the Dr. Lois Smith character was, Dr. Henneman. I don't know if, I think she was probably Timor, but then Timor was also Wally, who was the guy who sort of, you know, tended to the precogs. Down to the point of saying, you know, they get testy or, you know, they, they get agitated or whatever. Because Wally sort of seemed to think that he was communicating with the precogs, even though I'm pretty sure the precogs would not have recognized him on the street. Yeah. Because of the state that they were in. Right. Um, and then there was also the fact that the world didn't know that there was a minority report. <laughs> Right. Just like the mass of the troll hosts don't know that a host isn't nearly as special as (laughs) as everybody seems to think they are. Yeah. Um, Which, of course, in Minority Report led to the whole precog program being dismantled because it's no good if it turns out, you know, it doesn't work. Because that was the thing. If, if people haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it because the movie's 20 years old. Right. Well, actually, the movie is 16 years old. Um, there are three um, kids, I think they're about 17, 18 when the movie starts, uh, who have a bit of a um, psychic ability. And they all live in one place because their psychic ability is, is more uh, finely tuned when they're all together. And, and they can tell when a murder is about to happen. But then it turns out they don't always agree on whether there's going to be a murder. So they go with like, you know, whatever the most is like two people say there's going to be a murder. One person says, no, there's not going to be a murder. 
and then um, they just bury that. They they mm-hmm. figure majority rule in that case. But the problem is you've now sort of proven that this isn't necessarily true. I mean, if right. somebody else right. sees some other possibility, then we don't know for certain that that thing's going to happen. Thus, you can't go locking up people for crimes they literally haven't committed yet and maybe won't even commit. Um, which is not similar in like the structure, except it is similar that the the deification that you were talking about uh, is based on the fact that almost no one is good enough yeah. to to be uh, joined. And it turns out, uh, like like you know, look to your left, look to your right. One of those people is good enough, <laughs> or maybe mm-hmm. you're the one who's good enough, and the person one person over is as well. Um, which then leads me to the question, what do you make of the fact that everybody's just going to let that roll? Yeah, well, and it's funny because I had a similar question that I wrote down with you in mind, which mm. is, you know, we, we see what's happening here in Trill Society. We see the structure that they've created for themselves, that they're so willing to kill to keep it in place. Mm-hmm. Cisco and Bashir have uncovered it. Now Dax knows do we just leave it be? And, and I was thinking about our conversations about uh, like the Klingon Empire hmm. being a place that maintains secrets just so you can keep on being an empire. Right. You know, it's just it's so important. Whatever the truth is, that doesn't matter. We need to keep the image up so we can keep being Klingon regard, regardless. We keep saying honor. You know, just throw out the integrity that comes along with that. Doesn't matter. So my question to you, do we just let it burn to the ground, too? You know, well, I mean, here's the thing. I'm trying to figure out. uh, Can we can we talk about discovery just for a second? I know we don't normally do that or we shouldn't do that. But I mean, the uh, Starfleet basically made a deal with the Baul which were mm-hmm. keeping another race subservient, and they were, in fact, killing them when they came of age, mm-hmm. right? And Starfleet was fine with that for some reason, because they were pre-warp, I guess, yeah. is the reason. So it would violate the uh, prime directive uh, to mess that up. Um, the TNG episode, First Contact, when the leader decided there would be you know, too much upheaval if they told the truth about there being you know, more to the galaxy than anyone knew they decided not to tell them but again you get a prime directive problem there because they were only about to attain warp capability they hadn't attained warp capability yet right we've got trill in starfleet i assume that they are actually warp capable and whether they're warp capable or not we've 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 got trill walking around in starfleet do we let this continue now the one thing i will say is Nobody seems to be suffering, right? Mm. Like, like, like Yolan Bilar uh, became a composer. You don't just get to be a composer if you want to be a composer on Earth, right? Mm. Um, and I don't know for certain uh, that the Trill Society has the same sort of post-scarcity thing going that the rest of the Federation seems to, or certainly Earth and, and hopefully the rest of the Federation does. Um. I mean, it's possible that things are so cherry there that nobody's really going to complain. It's just sort of like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I, I, it, it feels wrong, and yet it doesn't necessarily seem like anybody's suffering, and yet it feels wrong. Yeah, well, and there's the difference between the, the Trill and the Klingons, you know. So the, the Klingons historically in Star Trek were the enemy, and we know that they're... Um, 
at at best a little uh, a little eccentric, a little mm-hmm. uncontrollable, <laughs> you know. But right. but at worst, they they could be fearsome and horrible enemies. So when something happens that is their problem, their internal politics, we we just go, oh, okay, well you're sure, you're, yeah, you're you're doing your thing, you're maintaining your empire. Trills so far, what we've seen is that they are. Um, uh, like you said, nobody's suffering. Uh, they are capable and smart and and uh, benevolent. You know, th- there's nothing terrible going on here. Um, but there's this horrible untruth at the core of how they view their entire existence. <laughs> you know? Oh, that. Oh, that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, and you almost look at it at a certain point, like there's the the medical scientific truth going on there, but at a certain point, because it's so baked into the culture, is it this sort of uh, quasi-religious philosophical truth that they they grow up believing that that is the basis of how they look at their existence? So you can't really slap the prime directive on it, but you got to say, well, that that's just. That, that that's how they live. That's how this whole thing is structured. And because here's the problem, then if you reveal that to everybody, if Cisco had his way, and I love that showdown with Cisco, do you understand my terms? Fabulous, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What happens when you go back to Trill in a couple of years? Or you go back in 20 years or, or whatever? Is it just chaos? Is it just madness? You know, people cutting each other open to get those uh, symbionts out. Well, that's sort of terrible. Yeah. No, I'm actually thinking, though, um, that uh, Trill is just now uh, Cisco's meal ticket because, boy, he had no he had no problem saying, hey, listen, I have something I want. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to wreck your society. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, that's which is I mean, you know, there's a there's a screenwriter i follow on twitter actually and and i love his writing i'm pretty sure i've mentioned him here before and i can never remember his name unfortunately but he he talks about the fact that he is not a fan of um i believe he was talking about a movie with um um, dwayne johnson it might have been san andreas it might have been skyscraper i can't remember but he's watching it and you know like thousands of people are dying but we don't really care because our hero lives and he's yeah. and he actually worries about the fact that um that that we as viewers become sort of uh, dulled to real pain in the real world because the stories we tell now are about the single hero making it and if 10,000 people have to die but it's okay because this guy and his kid live then we feel like we've seen a good story right mm-hmm. um i kind of wonder about cisco's whole like his willingness to uh, extort blackmail mm-hmm. i'm kidding about him going back every few years and saying by the way need more latinum you know or something like that i don't <laughs> think he would do that but yeah. i mean he 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 seems to think that there is something bad going on there but he's willing to let it slide as long as he gets what he wants which Zia has to think that there's something going on there that is bad too i, I at a certain point when this truth is revealed or not. As it has been to her. Why are you assuming that she thinks that that's bad? Because, I mean, it should be pointed out, she's she's at the top of that chain. Well, she's she was one out of a thousand. So, yeah. Yeah, well, well now, now you're like one out of two. <laughs> right, but I mean, it, yeah. that, that's worked for her, though. 
Why would, I mean, because as tough as the competition was, imagine if she was competing with 50% of the population. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, I mean, you're saying she has, so now she knows there's this bad thing. She doesn't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I mean, uh, we go back to the French Revolution. I'm pretty sure Marie Antoinette wasn't like, you know, these guys are right. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Because it had been working for her right up until the point it wasn't. I, I mean, I don't know that. My assumption is that Jadzia assumes it's bad, but, you know, it's left Jadzia sitting pretty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she may actually see no problem with this. And, you know, she may be thankful, first of all, to, to Cisco for saving her life, but also not wrecking it for the people for whom it would have been wrecked. Because for the people that it works out, pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Ain't, ain't that the truth? <laughs> Sorry if I seem out of sorts this episode. I am just feeling a little sluggish. You know, John, if we didn't do this part of the show, I I think the whole thing would feel off kilter. Oh, we mean uh, off balance. I think think there would be a... Yes, I don't think we would reach... um, full equilibrium on equilibrium if we didn't talk about you know the ideas and the ideals and seeing you know uh, what the what the what the what the messages were and whether the episode holds up today and uh, why don't we start with that question john equilibrium does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned yeah you know it's funny we actually got an email from one of our listeners not that long ago saying hey uh on the last episode or, or episode before last did, did you actually hit that question, does the episode hold up? Did you actually say yay or nay? And um, and I couldn't remember, honestly. Yeah, I don't because know. Because, yeah, th- this is such a subjective part of the show, and, and we sort of interpret it to mean different things when, when we get to the end of an episode of Mission Log. So, um, but I feel like at this point, you know, look, when we were talking about TOS and you talk about does something hold up or not, you're taking into account a show that is 50 years old and maybe production values don't hold up or there are writing problems that don't hold up because stylistically it doesn't work. We're in sort of Star Trek's golden age here, that, that crossover time of TNG DS9 Voyager where so much production resources being thrown at these shows. And generally speaking, look, they're all going to be produced well. We know this cast is awesome. So we know the acting generally is going to be great unless somebody is having a a really off day or there's a guest star who's just woefully miscast, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So generally speaking, yeah, production value is going to be there. The, The production is going to work. And it really depends on whether or not the messages and story elements uh, fit. Um, Alan Moraine. So in this case, here's the thing. This may sound really nitpicky about this episode, because overall, for all the reasons I stated before, I think it's very good. The writing overall is very good. The character stuff is very good. The acting, the production value we know is going to be very good. But to me, this was a very oddly paced episode to the extent that it kind of hurt my enjoyment. Um, I'll go back just even to the prologue where you have this light, casual, fun dinner scene. And then the fade out before going to credits is just this long, slow fade 
on top of Dax plunking out this tune on the keyboard. And you know, it's supposed to be weird, but it doesn't feel weird other than just the long, slow fade out. And they did that again. I can't remember if it's the end of Act 2 or exactly where it was in the show, but there was another time where it just felt like, well, we don't know exactly how to write the cliffhanger, the mini cliffhanger going into the break. So we'll just sort of let it be creepy and weird and do a slow fade out. Mm-hmm. So so pacing in this was very strange. Um, but all that said, look, if, if uh, a Dax story is your thing, and I do like Dax stories, then it's very interesting to get more detail on her or, or him or, or her or him. Um, it, it's, you know, it's marginal for me to say whether my nitpicky problems really affect the rating of the show does it hold up or not yeah look it holds up but those are things that to me kind of count against it just had it gone through another draft in the writer's room maybe those little oddities would have been cleaned up um but i i actually i like this episode quite a bit because i like the character stuff and i like the 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 ethical questions that were left with in the end even if some of those ethical questions weren't necessarily intended by the writers. I don't think they intended for us to spend 20 minutes going, wow, what's wrong with Trill society? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. I, I, well, uh, it's funny because you and I are on a similar page on some of it and less so on others. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that this episode actually stands a lot of rewatch. Like the House of Quark, I think, did. I, I, mm-hmm. I could easily sit down again and watch the House of Quark. And that has not been. That's not always something you can say about every, you know, every iteration of Star Trek. There are plenty of episodes of TOS that I'm like, yeah, no, I don't need to see that again. I'm good. And same thing with TNG. Um, Murder, she wrote or or Matlock. I mean, that's what the middle part felt like. Honestly, if you had had a couple of detectives come in, a couple of, you know, trill detectives or whatever, um, Mm -hmm. and trying to figure this out, you could have thought that they were, you know, piloting a spinoff. Not unlike the the Gary episode, uh, Gary Seven episode of uh, of the original series, mm. the, the the detective part of it. I mean, it really was. It was fairly clunky, as you say, and it's always kind of strange when you know they just sort of assume that anybody can be a detective, right? Yeah. Odo, we've written as sort of the hard boiled detective, but now it's like, oh yeah, we'll just make them. I'm not sure which one of them was Jessica Fletcher and which one of them was Ben Matlock, but I mean, it had it had kind of that feel, which is a bit weird. Um, at the same time, I like where the, I like where the show lands. I mean, I do like, um, the fact that it does raise that. Well, and again, if you don't think they were trying to raise that question, I guess they weren't. You could say that in first contact, they were trying to raise that question of whether or not the way that society was going was the way that society should go. Mm -hmm. They're definitely not trying to raise that question here. Um, but you know, we can't help, you know, coming to that place. And so in that, in that, in that case, that makes it an interesting, um, episode. And also I like where it lands. It goes back to the original, um, the original series episode, the enemy within at at the end of that episode, there was this thing about Kirk that he just hated about himself and he literally had to hug it. He literally had to like embrace that part of himself, not because he liked it, not because he reveled in it, not because he wants to be more like that, but it's part of him. And 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 to to pretend that the part of him was not part of him literally would have killed him in that case. It's like the line that you mentioned earlier as well with Dax, where you know, what what's the exact line? 
like you you have to know who you are to be who you are it's not that's not the line but yeah no if you want to know who you are it's important to know who you've been right yeah and the yeah. fact that she literally takes him to her and mm. says you're part of me i mean it's a little cheesy and it happens a little quick but i mean it's also it's a it's a wonderful message. I thought it was a wonderful message when they said it, you know, over 50 years ago now on The Enemy Within. And I think it's uh, still a wonderful message in this episode. I apparently skipped to the message part, John. Sorry. <laughs> no, but but that's fine, because I, then in that, I got to read what I wrote down as the message, because Dax comes right out and says it. If you want to know who you are, it's important to know who you've been. Yes, mm. it's, it's this this embrace, literal or figurative, of uh, the, the complexities of her personality i.e. our personalities, because those characters are reflective of us. You know, that that's uh, it, it's a nice thing to have in there. Um, I, I will say that there is this other sort of message there, which is, you know, related, is parallel to that. You can't bury the truth. Um, although, uh, I'll give it a caveat, you can if we're talking about a planet-wide medical conspiracy. But, but you can't bury the truth when we're talking about a personal truth. You know, you only get so far when you try to try to push down that thing that's maybe gnawing away at you, which uh, may just be uh, uh, a memory or, um, you know, a, a personality problem or whatever, or literally the slug that's living in your stomach. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Hey, have you checked out all the shows on the Roddenberry Podcast Network? You got Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, and the newest edition, Daily Star Trek News, podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be fantastic. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trek Movie. On the next mission log, Second Skin. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. And another thing. How do they know it is the hosts that are incompatible? Any one of those watery, wormy things could be nuts. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.